We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Great news. For a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right. One month free with any new line. This exclusive offer is only available at select Spectrum stores. So stop by today. Our team of mobile experts are ready to help you switch and save hundreds on your mobile bill. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. Come see us at Market at Hilliard, Taylor Square, and Waterloo Crossing. Spectrum Internet and auto pay required. Restrictions apply. Visit store for details. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All Hit Radio. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Back to the Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell, coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to uh, visit us online, www.exxonradiotv.com. On all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And if you'd like to find out about the broadcast schedule we have here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. My guest this hour is Rebecca Pittman, and uh, she is best known for her series of nonfiction books in the paranormal genre. As a paranormal historian, Rebecca researches the most haunted venues in the world, spending hours in museums, historical societies, newspaper archives, and pubs all over the world. Her books are considered the most comprehensive on each of her subjects. With the venue's owner approval, she gains access to ancient photographs, documents, maps, and other data not seen in other books. Typically, she spends the night at these venues multiple times to absorb the atmosphere, not to mention the spirits, uh, walking their hallways, and uh, garner some of the amazing paranormal experiences 
of her own. Joining me now is the one, the only, Rebecca F. Pittman. And Rebecca, welcome to the Exxon, my dear. Well, thank you, Rob. I sound like a raging alcoholic now, but I appreciate Uh -uh. you having me on the show. No problem, and I'll drink to that. (laughs) Time to think of it, I'll drink to anything or anyone, anytime, anyhow, and anywhere. Uh, I feel like Dean Martin when I say that because (laughs) give me two bottles of Guinness and I melt like a light. Mind you, they're they're big bottles. Maybe that has something to do with it. Okay, where does your interest in the paranormal come from? I mean, besides the bars, the pubs, and all the other haunted places that you want. Yeah. I have four sons that I'm never going to hear the end of this one. (laughs) Um, I I started out with a love for Nancy Drew, and it went from there. But my Uh mom had some psychic abilities, and I was always jealous that I didn't have them. But it showed me there was something else out there, so... Mm -hmm. Why That's you, where it started. Why do you think there's still, after all of these years, there's still such an interest in the paranormal? To be honest, we get hit with so much reality, mm-hmm. especially today. Whether it's the political arena, whether it's all the other things going on in the world, uh-huh. it's almost an escapism for people. It's something intangible that's almost a fairy tale like feeling to it. And yet, it's it's this world that's it's that final frontier feeling. It's something to still explore. Mm-hmm. And I think people who've lost loved ones uh, want to have hope that there's something after this. And we all do when we know we're going to leave this planet someday. So, do you th- do you believe in life after death? Oh, I very much do. Why? I was raised in the Mormon Church, and uh, I do believe very much. And 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 I I feel uh, my parents are mm-hmm. both gone, and they there are things that have happened where I'm very much aware that they are still here and looking out for me, which is very comforting. The title of your book is "The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden." Before we get to Lizzie mm-hmm. and her boarding. Um, <laughs> the, I'm not going to oh. make it through this interview. <laughs> Very few do, so don't feel that you're, you're in a class of your own, so don't worry about that. We'll make you comfortable, and if need oh, be, we have a first aid kit right here. All right. Um, where have you been, I mean, besides Lizzie Borden's, that has just blown your mind because it is so haunted that, that you actually felt the hair on the back of your neck go up and that tingling feeling that you get all over when something paranormal is going to happen? It would be Limp Mansion in St. Louis. Um It's spelled Uh L-E-M-P. All of the places I write about, I've had something happen. But as far as back-to-back, unrelenting, Mm -hmm. in-your-face, that place is so haunted, I can't even tell yet. (laughs) Well, what was the haunting about? Can you share that with us? Yes, the Limps introduced lager beer to America during the Gilded Age. Uh And they were the wealthiest. Oh, I'm Uh back to beer. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, So they were one of the wealthiest families in St. Louis during the Gilded Age, had it all. Uh But four members of the family kill themselves by gunshot, three inside the mansion, and one uh, who was Elsa Limp, was the richest uh, young woman in St. Louis when her mother died, killed herself, they say, in her mansion. 10 minutes away from Limp Mansion. This is during 
the early 1900s. I don't think she killed herself. I think her husband was involved. But uh-huh. nonetheless, you have four deaths by gunshot. Wow. So and I've heard gunshots mm-hmm. in the hallway in that mansion when I've spent the night. And that is a very surreal feeling. They weren't muffled. They were very loud. And I've had something kick the bed and sit on my feet there. It's just an amazing place. Vincent Price used to visit all the time. He was very good friends with one of the limps. So just a huge amount of atmosphere in there. Um, how do you think ghosts can actually do what they do, uh, whether it be an e, uh, EVP or whether it be the sound of a gun that isn't there? How do we explain this? I believe they interact through energy. Everything is energy. And that's why so many of the stories you hear about ghosts, it's an interference with a television mm-hmm. or a tape recorder or lights flickering. They can control electromagnetic fields and try to communicate with us that way. That's, that's a sentient haunting. That means there's intelligence involved. What I heard with the gunshot is what they call a residual haunting, which is a loop played back in time. And they're two completely different things. I couldn't have interacted with that, with the gunshot, and I didn't want to. Right. Um, but to me, that's just fascinating. It, it all has to do with energy. Okay, it has to do with energy. Uh, how, is there any, any, any theory on there on how they manipulate energy? Their energy themselves, we are, as human beings, 99.9% energy and light. Mm -hmm. When we die, that energy has to go somewhere. And so that's it's hovering around. Whatever causes it to interact with people, I don't know. Eight people can be standing there and experience completely different things. One person might see the apparition. One might smell something. Uh, one might hear something that the other person didn't hear. EVPs are possible because these entities are impressing that energy onto the tape and manipulating the tape. But how does that if, happen? It, like I, my background is in engineering, audio and video, so I, I have a problem trying to understand how that imprint gets there without, first of all going through the microphone and in order for it to go through the microphone it has to it has to give off a frequency and exactly. a dead frequency is not is not recorded so how does this happen it, it's i find this very amazing it's amazing and it is hard to understand if you notice in the reality go shows oh now don't will, take me down that road they'll ask a question they don't hear the answer they only hear it when they play it back or when the director so or producer the, tells them to, yeah. somehow they imprinted on the tape, but mm-hmm. it wasn't audible to them. Do you really believe those reality shows? You don't want me to go there, do you? They may know where I live. <laughs> it's, it's all right. They know where I live, too. And, you know, I call I them a... I get tired of the... Did you hear that? Oh, my did God. You see that? I call them a bunch I of mean, hoaxers. I know. After yeah. an hour, it's like, no, I didn't see that. And no, I didn't hear that. <laughs> Anyway, you and I have got to get ready to go to our first break. But when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about your book, The History of and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. And Exonation, our guest this hour is Rebecca F. Pittman, and her website is www.rebeccafpittmanbooks.com. 
Don't forget, we're coming to you around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network, Exxon Broadcast Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and of course, on iHeartRadio. And in the words of a person who used to go to a certain tavern, <laughs> if you drink lager beer, you're going to go like the limps. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. And if you do go away, no lager beer. Guinness is okay. up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast but the rest of us sleep in this is your sign to thank them and if you're that friend this is us saying thank you now get a sausage McMuffin sausage biscuit sausage burrito or hash browns choose two for $2.50 enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2 price of participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer a combo meal single item at regular price ba-da-ba-ba-ba Great news. For a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right, one month free with any new line. This exclusive offer is only available at select Spectrum stores. So stop by today. Our team of mobile experts are ready to help you switch and save hundreds on your mobile bill. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. Come see us at Market at Hilliard, Taylor Square, and Waterloo Crossing. Spectrum Internet and auto pay required. Restrictions apply. Visit store for details. Well, Beer, we've had some great times. When I was 17, I drank some very good beer. I drank some very good beer I purchased with a fake ID. My name was Brian McGee. I stayed up listening to Queen when I was 17. Uh, no, this is the Exxon Radio Show. I am Rob McConnell, and uh, no, we haven't lost it yet. We never had it. So how can you lose something you haven't had? Oh, I'm having a good time with my guest this hour. Her name is Rebecca Pittman, and uh, she is the author of The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. And if you didn't join us the first segment because of your different affiliate feeds... You have to go back to the archives and listen. Then what we just did by playing Homer's beer song and, and the beer barrel polka will totally make sense to you. But now we're going to get on to the serious things that we talk about here, Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern, and that's the paranormal, 
the parapsychology, the weird, the strange, the bizarre, and sometimes politics, which fits in perfectly in those categories. <laughs> um, first of all, Rebecca, I love your sense of humor. You've got a very positive feel around you, and uh, I'm Thank sorry you. if I'm getting you into trouble with your four boys. Well, they're they're very tall. They range from six three to six eight, so they may be coming after you. Well, I'm six <laughs> five, and I run like hell. <laughs> All right, I'll buy okay. tickets to the whole thing. <laughs> hey, we can have our own basketball team. Exactly. Yeah, call our, call ourselves the Holy Rollers or something like that. Well, I'm six foot two, so I'll take you on. Six foot two eyes of blue, and oh, what those foot six foot two eyes. Oh, never mind. Okay, let's talk about Lizzie Borden. All right. Where did your fascination with her come in? I've been fascinated with this since probably high school. It's, it you know, it's one of those cases. It's still considered unsolved i think i came pretty darn close um but it's the audacity and the timing that this could be done in only a 10 minute window of time to have two people literally butchered why don't you share with our listeners the story of lizzie borden all right uh this was in 1892 august 4th and in broad daylight around 11 well about 10 45 uh the call went out that um Andrew Borden was found, well, slain on his sitting room sofa. He had 11 hatchet blows to his face. And later they found his wife, Abby, up in the guest room, and she'd had 18 blows to the head with a hatchet. And the only two people home at the time were Andrew's daughter, Lizzie, who was 32, and the Borden maid, Bridget, who had been outside cleaning the windows. And yet within 10 minutes of Lizzie raising the alarm that her father was butchered on the couch and people came running, there wasn't a drop of blood on her, not a hair out of place. And so it was just almost impossible. And in that era, in the Victorian era, women were, would have never been thought of being capable of doing something like this. I mean, Andrew's eye was split in half and hanging on his cheek. This was just a horrendous, horrendous attack on both of these people. So it's just a fascinating case. So why was the finger pointed to Lizzie Borden as, as the perpetrator of this heinous crime? It, it, she, was, she didn't do herself any favors. As the police came and interviewed her, her mm -hmm. stories became very contradictory, conflicting, uh, she said during the timeline that her father had been murdered, she was out in the barn in the backyard, up in the loft on the hottest day of the year, looking for lead to make sinkers for a fishing line to go fishing. And yet when the police looked up in the barn, the barn dust had not been disturbed. There were no hmm. footprints in it. There, were, there was nothing to show she'd been out there. Um, so she, it just started falling apart around her, even though they couldn't find any evidence of blood to show that she was part of it. So what happened? Uh, was there a trial? There were four. Four trials. Um, there, wow. there was an inquest, a preliminary hearing, a mm -hmm. grand jury, and finally the Superior Court trial took place almost a year after the murders. My God, I didn't know Robert Mueller was that old. I know. Wow. It's impressive. It is. It is. No wonder he looks so tired when you see him on TV. Okay. Hey, uh, F. Lee Bailey was not available at the time, but... Um, 
Well, what's the matter? Was Johnny Cochran busy trying to fit gloves on his hand or what? Well, along that note, this case has been compared often to the O.J. Yeah. Simpson case. It has a lot of parallels. Can you name a couple of them? Uh, two victims, mm -hmm. both slain. Right. Uh, both times the uh, victim got, or the um, perpetrator got off because of, quote, shoddy police work. Mm -hmm. And they were both acquitted. They both got away with it, she and O.J., so was um, was Mark Furman part of that uh, investigation as well? No, they uh -huh. there were two policemen in the basement who did find some hatchets, but Mark was not among them. I can just see it, a high-speed chase, horse and buggy, all <laughs> the way down through the center of town. Oh, okay. oh. oh this is fun. Well, you know what? Life is short. You know, you're here for a good time, not for a long time, yes. so if you can't have... If you can't have a good time, what's the sense of being around, huh? Because when you get to the other side, if you haven't had any fun on this side, you can be awful cranky. And who wants to be a cranky spook? Yeah, they don't give you your wings if you're cranky. I didn't even know they had an Air Force. <laughs> I can't believe I'm oh. talking about one of the most heinous crimes in history with you, and I'm laughing more than not. Welcome aboard Ghost <laughs> Airline 6711. Nonstop. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> okay. The, the, to be honest, this case, it, it's just unbelievable. The book is mm -hmm. 828 pages long. That wow. tells you how much information there is. And I was very lucky to find at least five new pieces of evidence that have never been found in the 125 years since this case happened. What evidence did you find? Well, after reading 5,000 pages of trial transcripts and police interviews, these things started popping up. Mm -hmm. um, I was also able to find a gentleman that appeared on the front steps of the Borden house three days before the murders mm -hmm. that the police looked for, the attorneys looked for, and they never found him. And I found him, and I was very, very excited because what it points to is a scheme going on behind Lizzie's back that I believed caused her to kill her father and stepmother. Um, this is very cool, actually. The, the guy that appeared on the front porch rang the doorbell, and Andrew opened the door and admitted him into the home. He was in there for 10 minutes. This is three days before the murders. A gentleman sitting in a buggy across the street noticed the young man, and he said, what caught my attention was what he was wearing. He had slacks with a dark stripe down the leg, and he was wearing russet-colored baseball shoes. This is 1892. You don't see baseball shoes very often. So I did my homework, and it took me quite a while. What I did know about this land scheme going on behind Lizzie's back was that it involved a lot of her relatives, and they were keeping it from her because it was going to cost her her inheritance. This was a huge farm that was in the Borden family that she and her sister Emma would have inherited, 250 acres. But Andrew decided to go into a horse business with her uncle, mm -hmm. and he was going to put the farm in her stepmother's name. And hence, they both ended up murdered. Um, but the gentleman on the step turned out to be James Chatterton. He is one of Lizzie's cousins from the New York side. 
it's probably someone she wasn't that familiar with that her uncle brought in to be the overseer for this huge farm deal. And I'm very proud of that. I mean, that well, I found out he played for the Kansas City Cowboys, russet-colored brown baseball shoes, mm. and fit the description the guy gave of him. And I believe his brother Joseph was the young man that showed up the day of the murders to take Abby to the bank. Talk about a cold case. My Lord, yes. 125 years old. Yes. So I was very excited about that. Three neighbors heard me scream when I found out who is who that was. So I'm that's that's pretty neat. I'm very happy with that. Well, that you're to be congratulated on that. Uh, so congratulations. That was excellent work. Thank you. Do I get my detective badge? Um, Craig, <laughs> what, what do we have? For, what do we have for this winter? A case of lager beer. Actually, no. <laughs> We're going to go to a commercial break now as we uh, finish this segment before the news with uh, Detective Lieutenant Rebecca F. Pittman of the Paranormal Police. If you'd like to find out more about Rebecca, and all kidding aside here, Exxon Nation, the history and haunting of Lizzie Borden, her website is www.rebeccafpittmanbooks.com. And we'll be back as, once again, we continue our investigation into the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here in the Exome from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Great news. For a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right, one month free with any new line. This exclusive offer is only available at select Spectrum stores. So stop by today. Our team of mobile experts are ready to help you switch and save hundreds on your mobile bill. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. Come see us at Market at Hilliard, Taylor Square, and Waterloo Crossing. Spectrum Internet and auto pay required. Restrictions apply. Visit store for details. Great news. For a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right, one month free with any new line. This exclusive offer is only available at select Spectrum stores. So stop by today. Our team of mobile experts are ready to help you switch and save hundreds on your mobile bill. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. Come see us at Market at Hilliard, Taylor Square, and Waterloo Crossing. Spectrum internet and auto pay required. Restrictions apply. Visit store for details. Make me dizzy, Miss Lizzie. When you do 
And welcome back. Rebecca F. Pittman is our special guest to this hour, Exonation, and she is the young lady behind a very interesting book. It's entitled, do you have your pencils and paper ready? Okay, it's entitled The, ha- the History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. And her website is www.rebeccafpittmanbooks.com. So the, the, the new evidence that you found, what was the repercussions when it came to how history had originally written the crime? I don't think that the, the bones of it, if you want to call it that, have changed. Mm-hmm. What I think I've been able to do is flesh out a lot of the unanswered questions during the trial, one of the reasons she got away with it is there was no will um, discovered. So if there was no will, then what in the heck was the motive? Right. The land scheme was not known of at the time. The prosecuting attorneys didn't know about it. Um, and every, you know, as soon as the murders happened, her uncle John, who was part of the deal, obviously clammed up. He was mm-hmm. the first suspect. He happened to be staying at the house the night before, uh, showed up unannounced, no luggage. And he was the first one that the police looked at until Lizzie started falling apart and acting very strangely. And um, so basically the story itself hasn't changed, but I believe what I've brought forth in the book is the, the compilation of everything that ties it together and a lot of unknown facts. Let me May ask I, you. Can I tell you a couple of them? Real oh, quick? I'd appreciate it. Sure. Well, this is this is really interesting to me. Bridget Sullivan, the maid, mm-hmm. the poor thing, um, she said, quote, when they asked her, okay, there was poisoning involved before these hatchets. Lizzie's first plan of attack was to poison them. And she actually did two days before the murders. They got, Andrew and Abby got very, very sick, but they didn't die. And it's like poop. So the next day on Wednesday, she's running around trying to get more arsenic. Mm -hmm. Nobody'd sell it to her. So then she tried to get prussic acid, which is the strongest thing you can get. It'll kill you in two seconds. Nobody'd sell her that. So that's why the morning of the murder, she had to resort to using a hatchet. That was not her first choice. So the police, after they heard about how sick Abby and Andrew were uh, Tuesday night, two nights before the murder, and the fact that Abby ran across the street to the doctor and said, I think somebody's poisoning us, Mm -hmm. the police sent off the milk to get it tested for poison. The milk was delivered every morning fresh to the Borden doorstep from their farm. So they sent off samples of Wednesday's milk, and Thursday's milk. Thursday was the day of the murders. Right. But here's the quote I love. When Bridget was interviewed by the police, she said, and I know there wasn't any poison in it because I drank the last of it. Well, if she drank the last of Wednesday's or Thursday's milk, there wouldn't have been any of those two to send off. She drank the last of the milk from Tuesday night when the poisonings actually happened. But she didn't drink it, in my opinion, until Thursday morning. She needed the bottles because another new um, canister of milk was coming. She needed room, so Mm -hmm. she drank the last of what I believe was a bottle of milk that had been pushed to the back of the icebox. And she became violently ill Thursday morning and was out back throwing up the mornings of the murder, uh, the morning of the murders. And she says it right there, I know because I drank 
the last of it. So they sent the two wrong items off to be tested for poison, Wednesday's and Thursday's milk. It but, was a mute point. But It was Tuesday's milk that was poisoned. But wouldn't, uh, during the coroner's exam, would the arsenic not have been shown up in any of the testing that was done in those times? By then, it was two days later. Um, they were poisoned on Tuesday night. The murders were Thursday. Okay. And so it had worked its way out of their system by then. Um, they were still pretty sick on Wednesday, uh, but Abby was a very big woman, mm -hmm. and they, the fat, they think, saved her from getting as sick as Andrew did. Plus, Andrew poured milk all over his toast Tuesday night, and I believe when it absorbed all the arsenic in the milk, it sat longer in his stomach because it was a big piece of saturated toast. Um, I think he was still pretty ill on Thursday morning, the morning of the murders from the people who saw him. But it didn't show up really in their system. Is there any other possibility when it comes to the poisoning? For example, bad milk bacteria in the milk, a, a, a vessel that wasn't washed properly or sanitized. The new milk was put in, but because of bacterial growth, spread throughout the milk, and this is the cause of the sickness. Well, they, they looked at all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, back then, they called it the summer sickness. It was usually fish that had gone bad. You know, the refrigeration yeah. wasn't that great. But the milk was delivered fresh from the farm every single morning. They got a fresh canister of milk. Well, um, yeah, so I, I, understand, I understand that, but my background is as a, as a police detective. And when I hear stuff like this, I kind of say, well, wait a minute. We're looking back in the 1800s. The refrigeration was mm, back then at the very most. Sanitization was mm, at the very most. And right. yet even today, even up until the 1950s and 1960s, with all our modern technology, children were, were getting uh, su subjected to tomain poisoning in baby food. Yes. So... Okay, so we'll, we'll just put that one on the side burner. But let me ask you this. Why is this case so embedded in the annals of Americana? It's only well, two deaths. Well, again, Lizzie was a Sunday school teacher. Yeah. She did charity work. She was a, she, The Bordens were a very well-respected family. They right. were some of the, the town founding fathers. The rich Bordens lived up on the hill in the mansions. Mm. And so for a Borden to be accused in the first place was a very big deal, let alone a Sunday school teacher who was a 32-year-old spinster at the time. It, and and it, just the brutality of these attacks, um, the descriptions of the coroner are just, ugh. I mean, it was, it was pretty bad, and it was something you might imagine a maniacal man doing, but never this, she was five foot four. It just that wasn't something you'd think she could do. Is it possible that Lizzie Borden was a patsy? I don't think so. Why not? Um, for, well, because I found um, during the research that she actually had a dress made mm -hmm. nine days before the murders that was a much looser fit than anything she'd ever had made before. She went out of town to buy the material for it. Nobody would ever seen this dress before. Her dressmaker said she always had her dresses made very snug. This one was loose. It was a box pleat. The, the, the policeman that day, the day of the murders, described it as a bosom in the waist, meaning it poofed out down at the waist level. They called them pigeon dresses back then. 
And her best friends, her neighbors, they'd never seen this dress before. Maybe she was developing a bubble butt. I don't think so. This is in the front. Oh, well, maybe she was pregnant. What I believe she did was she had it made to wear over the stained Bedford cord dress that she killed Abby in. She was going to walk that dress right out of the house. So she had another dress made that would fit over it. And that's the one she had on um, when she killed Andrew. And okay. with Andrew, she just slipped on his Prince Albert coat over it and used it to kill him and then folded it up, put it under his head. But you're, you're saying she killed Abby and Andrew, and yet she wasn't convicted. No, she wasn't. So, they so we can't, well, we can't then legally say that she killed Abby and she killed Andrew, because she was found not guilty. That's you have a very good point. But from what I found in the book, there could I, in my opinion, mm-hmm. there were too many things she did. Why did she do them? Unless it was for that reason, and who else could have done it in that period of time? I just when you look at all of the things. Okay, can I, the other one? This is kind of cool. Okay, I believe there were two murder plots. The Andrew and Abby were supposed to be starting their summer vacation at the Swansea farmhouse that the week of the murders. Lizzie was out of town. Everybody knew they were supposed to go there. It was what they did every summer. People went over closer by the river because it was so hot. Even someone in town, when he saw Andrew on Tuesday, said, I thought you were going to be vacationing at the farm. And he said, no, there's too much trouble at my house. We're not going. Well, Lizzie thought they were going to start their vacation on Monday, three days before the murder. Everyone else did. I believe she put poison in the milk can at the farmhouse to be ready for them when they showed up. And here's why. She didn't realize until later that they did. They canceled their trip. But guess what happened? Two farmhands from the farm became violently ill. And I think when they didn't show up, rather than waste that canister of milk Mm -hmm. sitting on the step waiting for them, I think the two farmhands drank it. So now, and and John Morse, her uncle, during the testimony, tried to stay as far away from that subject as possible. The attorney said, didn't you go over to the farm and ask Mr. Eddie how he was feeling? All right, we've got to take take our final break. Please stand by. Exonation, Rebecca F. Pittman is our special guest. www.rebeccafpittmanbooks.com. And she is the author of The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Come on, give me fever. Put your little hand in mine. You make me dizzy, dizzy, lazy. Oh, girl, it looks so fine. Just a rockin' and a
And welcome back, everyone. Rebecca F. Pittman is our guest this hour. She is the author of The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. And her website is RebeccaFPittmanBooks.com. First of all, Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight. I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. You're a gracious lady. And um, continued success. And I mean that from the bottom of my Guinness heart. Um, (laughs) I think I can answer a question you just gave me very succinctly. Okay. Can I tie it up in a little bundle? Sure. When you said, if she was acquitted, why do I believe so firmly that she did it? Yeah. Very quickly. Bridget, the maid, Mm -hmm. she went upstairs. um, During the time Andrew was being murdered, Bridget was up in her attic bedroom. Mm Mm-hmm. When the police took her in for questioning, she was scared to death that she thought she was being accused. And she blurted out at the police station, I don't think Miss Lizzie went outside at all. She, her, her bedroom, Bridget's attic window overlooked the backyard and the barn. And during her testimony, the attorney tried to lead her away from that window, which was one of the most fascinating things, I think, in the whole thing. It was, he did not want her saying what she saw from the window, Um, but she blurted out, I don't think Lizzie went outside, and that was Lizzie's whole alibi. So you've got the the maid saying, I don't think she was out there. Lizzie's alibi didn't pan out. There were no footprints at all in the barn showing that she'd been there, yet that's where she said she was. When she was asked to hand over the dress she was wearing the morning of the murder, she Mm -hmm. gave them a completely different dress. Where did the other dress go? That's the thing. Sunday morning, this is now a couple of days after Saturday night, two Mm -hmm. nights after the murders, the police came to her house and finally said, you're suspected. The very next morning on Sunday, she burned a dress in the stove in the kitchen. What innocent person would do any of those things? How do we know she burned a stove? Uh, She burned a dress in the stove. Her friend who'd come to stay with them Mm -hmm. during this ordeal walked in on her and said, Lizzie, what are you doing? Yeah. And to me, that it, what it was was the Bedford cord that she'd murdered Abby in. It had but, paint stains on it, which I think is the reason she chose that dress to start with. But wait a sec, wait she, a sec here. This is speculation. I'm sorry? This is sheer speculation. No, no, it's not. Well, sure it is, <laughs> because there is no evidence that what Lizzie Borden was actually burning was a dress that she wore during the alleged murder of Andrew and um, Abby. Abby. And you're, you're absolutely right. But once again, I, I go back to the fact that she went through due process. She was acquitted. So why does this story remain? It, in my books, it should be a closed case. A lot of the people during that time did not believe that she should have been acquitted. They thought she got away with murder. And she was shunned for the rest of her life in Fall River. But what happens if she really didn't do it? That there was another part of this investigation that was totally missed because of police work, because of the the way of gathering evidence. Well, then why lie about where you were when your father was being murdered? Why turn in a dress that she was not wearing that day? Why not mm-hmm. give them the real one? All of the people who described the dress she had on the morning of the murder said it was light blue. Yes. The one she handed in was dark navy blue. Let me ask you a question. Yes, During sir. the day, 
Have you ever changed your clothes? Uh, yes. Ta-da. And if somebody was to ask you to hand them the clothes that you were wearing that afternoon, would you give them the clothes you were wearing in the morning or the clothes that you were giving in, uh, that you were wearing in the afternoon? She did change her clothes that day into right. a pink and white striped wrapper. Right. So when asked to give the police the clothes that she wore, what clothes did she give the police? The pink and white wrapper? No. She gave them a, a dark navy blue dress out of her closet that did not match the one she wore the morning of the murders and was definitely not the pink and white wrapper. That's the point. So you're saying there's three different sets of clothing? Yes, but you just said two a few seconds ago. No, there's been, well, I'm really going to confuse you. There are three dresses. There's okay. the Bedford cord that I believe she murdered Abby in. There's the loose-fitting dress she had made nine days before the murders to mm -hmm. wear over the Bedford cord. And okay. then there's the dress she actually handed in to the police. So there's three dresses right I there, see. not even counting the pink and white stripe that she changed into. Now, now where did she murder these people? In her home. Yeah, but where in the home? Abby was murdered in the guest room upstairs while she was changing the linens after John Morse, the uncle, left because he mm -hmm. used the guest room. Right. Andrew came home early. I don't think Andrew was supposed to die. Abby died at 9.30. He didn't usually come home until 11 from his rounds at his banks, but he came home at 10.40 because he was still not feeling very well, mm -hmm. and Abby didn't show up for the bank meeting. She was dead. So he came home to see what happened to her, and right. Lizzie said she got a note from a sick friend and went out. So while he laid down on the sofa to wait for her because he wasn't feeling well, and mm -hmm. that's when he died. He got 11 hatchet blows to the head. Wow. I'm just saying, why lie about all of these things? Well, she changed her story so many times that the police and the detectives' heads were spinning. Kind of sounds like the Trump family. You know, they change their stories all the time. <laughs> yeah. I have no comment. Yeah. I'm just making a comparison. Okay. Well, you've got to admit, it is a fascinating story. Oh, it, it is. It is. But come the point where she was found guilty, she went through due process. Yes. Could there, could there be a lot of animosity that, that just because she was rich, that she got away with it, even though she might have been innocent? I actually, the problem was the house they actually lived in was very austere. It was way beneath the mm -hmm. money that Andrew um, had. And right. was was part of the reason Lizzie was upset. She wanted the mansion on the hill right. and knew he could afford it. So she wasn't really living the high and mighty lifestyle. So once, once again, I, I have to wonder why the townspeople were so upset. Because here you've got this girl who allegedly was arrested, followed through due process, was found innocent of these crimes, and yet she was still ostracized by the town for the rest of her life. Why? I, I just, well, because she didn't act like she should have. Even after she was acquitted, mm -hmm. you'd think you'd leave a quiet life. Instead, she bought her mansion on the hill with her right. dead father's millions and was the first woman in town to own a car and, well, you know, drove around in this fancy car. She threw huge parties mm -hmm. for theater people, yeah. which back then, if you were an actress, it was akin to being a prostitute. 
she literally rubbed their faces in it that she had all this money and no but none of the people surrounding her in their mansions wanted her there it was kind of a blemish on that perfect neighborhood and she did nothing to re- and then she was accused of stealing even then and it made the papers mm-hmm. um, that she shoplifted at a jewelry store she didn't do anything to help herself ah the sweet taste of revenge yes so I just, like I said, to me it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's a huge book. I was able to not only stay at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast where the murders took place, yeah. but also in her mansion on the hill, which was a, a, a great treat for me because the public was not being allowed at the time. Maplecroft is opening finally for the first time to the public the end of March, and I'm sure it'll be swamped. It's going to open as a bed and breakfast. Definitely going to be a cash cow. Yes. And they're wonderful people. They're the ones that own the the bed and breakfast where the murders happened. So it's going to be quite the legacy. What are your final thoughts that you'd like to relate to the Exo Nation tonight? I believe in my heart that Lizzie Borden was a sociopath. I don't think she knew remorse or guilt. Uh, My line in the book is Lizzie Borden a woman with her face pressed up a world she could not enter? And I think she killed for it. How old was Lizzie when the, she committed or when she committed these alleged murders? 32. And her sister Emma was mm-hmm. 10 years older. And they died nine days apart, which is quite fascinating. It is. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure talking to you. Once again, uh, continued success in your endeavors. And ExoNation, if you'd like more information about Rebecca F. Pittman, www.rebeccafpittmanbooks.com. I hate to say it, ExoNation. I don't buy it. I don't understand the significance of this story. But, you know, that's just me. There seems to be a lot of holes in this story, you know, and not to the fact that Lizzie Bohr did, did not receive due process. She was arrested, put on trial. She was found innocent. So why drag this out throughout history when there are a lot more serious crimes that don't seem to get the attention that the Lizzie Borden case does? Could it be because of the paranormal connection? Bingo. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. 